I'm Sean Graham, and what's old as news this week is fear of a black nation. The landmark work by David Austin, released 10 years ago, is now in its second edition, released by our friends at Between the Lines Publishing. And the original work profiled the 1960s in Montreal, which was a hotbed of radical politics, attracting black and Caribbean figures, including Walter Rodney, Miriam McKeby, Stokely Carmichael, Rocky Jones, among others, using the ideas of folks like Malcolm X and Karl Marx in building communities, having intellectual discussions, pushing forth on questions of civil rights. And so what David Austin does in the book is that he puts Canada and Montreal within this broader international context where the communities that were built challenged the existing power structures. And in doing so, the book argues that the policing and surveillance of Black lives today is tied to the racial codes and practices, as well as the discipline and punishment that was associated with slavery. Very much a landmark work when it first came out. And now, in this second edition, there are new interviews with the author, a new preface, that further contextualizes what's in there. Just uh, what was already a very influential and very important book is now out again with added contextual material. And this is a book that I came across a while ago, maybe not right when it came out, but shortly after it came out. And I was very excited to learn that a second edition was coming out with that added contextual context. And I was equally, if not more excited for the opportunity to speak with David Austin about both the new material and the material that came out in the original. And I very much enjoyed the discussion. I hope you will as well. So let's get right into my chat with David Austin. All right. And David Austin joins me now. David, how are you today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you. And thank you for having me. I'm really happy to have you here to talk about Fear of a Black Nation. Now, as I said in the introduction, this is the second edition of the book. And one thing that a sec, having a second edition of a book signifies, or I guess maybe there's two key things that stand out to me initially. One is that the first edition probably did well. Uh, but mm. secondly, that there is something new to say, uh, or there's more to say, whether it's from the context of the time where the book is coming out or new research or, or whatever it is. But what is it that drew you back to this book, this project, and wanted to put out a new edition? Because there is new content in the book. So, so what was it about revisiting this in, in this moment? I think the fact that it's it's been out for 10 years and, you know, the 10th anniversary is just one of those, one of those markers to begin with. Um, I mean, that was one one reason why um, the second edition was published. It has been in print since 2013, so it's not it's not it's not a reprint. It's, it's it literally is a, a second edition. And you know, I guess you know, looking at ten years as a kind of marker, it's a way of sort of you know reflecting upon <clears throat> you know yes, why I wrote the book, but also you know in some ways how the book has been received and how it's been taken up. The new content consists of a few things which doesn't change the substance of the book itself. It's things that have been sort of added to complement the original text. So there's a new preface um, which sort of situates the book and talks about how it's been received and, you know, how it's been interpreted and things like that. Um, there's a map. I don't want to forget the map. A map of Montreal which sort of 
gives people uh, a geographical layout of the city of Montreal in relation to some of the events and and and, and so on that occur that occurred that um, are, are discussed in the book. And there are two interviews that were published in the aftermath of the book. One, I think in 2014, I think it was, or 14 or 15, I think it may be 14, which is a relatively long interview, um, which talks, yes, partly about the book, but a lot about sort of my own my own background and how, you know, that relates to, you know, the contents of the book and how, you know, um, both intellectually, politically, and experientially. And the second one, the second interview sort of continues, and both both of them actually can continue with some of the themes that are in, in the book. Sort of the book's aftermath, yes, but sort of like the, a, a kind of making a line of continuity think, between some of the things I've talked in the book and where some of my thinking has gone since the book was was published. So, so it sort of brings those things together into one in sort of package as, as one book. And um, and as I said, I think the new content complements the book, yeah, yeah, without changing the, the 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 main content of the book. One of the things I was wondering in terms of some of that new content, because what the original version, and obviously in this version as well, there are firsthand accounts of people who lived through the, the events that, that are discussed in 1960s mm-hmm. Montreal, but just the realities of time is that there's fewer people in 2023 than there were in 2013 uh, who can still share their stories, who are still with us. How much has just the loss of lived memory in that time, how has that shaped uh, your conception of it or the, the material itself and the importance of sharing the stories that are captured in the book with a new generation? Well, that's that's a really interesting question. And, you know, I think I'll start with the new generation part because we just picked up on something which is, I think, important in terms of a 10th anniversary edition. So the book is, is, is taught in colleges and universities. You know, I encountered people, lay folks who have nothing to do with academia, you know, who, you know, who read the book. So that's that's been ongoing. But it's also true that the book impacted a certain generation that was coming of age in 2013, you know, when there were different set of events, the world looked a little bit different. And many of the people that I talk about in the book, some of them, quite a few of them were still around, and many of them are still around too. But, you know, with the passage of time, right, the book is now being reintroduced to another generation. And I think, you know, that's the other thing about sort of you know, promoting a book 10 years after and, you know, sort of putting it out there in, in another kind of way. That's one thing. But but you also touched on something else that I think is really important in terms of the book's content. And that is that part of its coming into being is tied to interviews I did over the years, some of which <laughs> go back to the 1990s. And some of those interviews were done spontaneously. Some of those interviews were done very consciously, not thinking about the book, but just sort of, you know, like, you know, maybe this will, I used to be involved in radio, for example. So maybe this would be useful, you know, to talk about on a radio program with a broadcast parts of on a radio program. Some, I was just thinking about collecting stories for posterity and a strange thing. I used to, I used to walk around with a tape recorder when I was young, partly because I was a freelance journalist, but um, also I just thought, you know, collecting stories was important. So there are all of those things. And then the reality is that Many of those people, as I said, are no longer no longer with us. 
Um, some people have passed away since the book was published, right? So when you capture stories and particularly the stories of other people, and then, you know, it's a number of people's stories, but at some point they, you inherit them and they become your own. It also comes with, I think, at least for me, it has come with a sense of responsibility that, you know, this is part of the experience of multiple communities that are both local and international that tell us something about the Black and Caribbean population in this country, tells us something about politics, and tells us something about the world that we live in through the experience of the folks and the events that I that I that I that are captured in the book. So <clears throat> I have this sense of responsibility that things that were shared and passed down to me, you know, should should be shared with a um, shared with, with with subsequent generations. You know, mm-hmm. and it's just this is my way of, in some ways, this is my way of doing what other folks, older folks, right, encountered. Some of whom became very good friends, some of my closest friends, even though they were much older than me. This is my way of sharing much of what they share with me with other folks. How much of the responsibility that you feel or felt in telling these stories is related to the broader sense of a Black history in Canada? Because I can speak to what I was taught growing up and in my undergraduate and even as a graduate student, tends to be focused on southwestern Ontario and Mm -hmm. the terminus of the Underground Railroad, and then out on the East Coast, in, in particular in Halifax with Africville, that tends to be the things, or at least that was that's what I was traditionally taught uh, in terms of uh, Black history growing up in the 90s and, and early aughts. So how much of that responsibility and, and the stories you're telling is also important to fill that historiographical gap in the literature of the role Montreal played within the black community, both domestically, but as the book is so clear in, in discussing internationally, it's, it's mm-hmm. part of a, a larger international movement. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, things have sort of shifted and evolved over the years. You know, when I first encountered elements of the, the historical details that, that, are, that I touched upon in the book, that I talk about in the book, I was a teenager, maybe 18, 17, you know, I wasn't in university that I was in high school. And so much of what I was reading was just, or encountering, and this was in Toronto actually, was a revelation for me. It was through a book called The Groundings with My Brothers and some other books that were published, but particularly that book because it includes some lectures delivered by Walter Rodney, a very famous historian and political figure from Guyana that were delivered in Montreal. So that was one of my first inklings. And so, you know, that was novel history for me that I was beginning to encounter. And it's part of what brought me to Montreal, even subconsciously. It's to kind of follow that thread. And I, I came to encounter a number of people that had been part and part of that history. Um, in fact, an entire community um, of people. Yeah, it became, it became it, it, it in, in many respects, became my story. But at the time, there weren't too many people, except for the older generation that had been part of that history, and a historical moment, a historical experience, talking about it. And then, remarkably, I came to encounter the people, many of the people that had been involved directly in these, in, 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 in these events. So that was then. That's like the early 1990s, right? Mm-hmm. Or first, late 80s in Toronto, and then early 1990s when I moved to Montreal, 1990 when I moved to Montreal. 
since then, there have been radio, I mean, radio and television documentaries on some of those, some of that history and some of those events, particularly around the Sir George Williams protests. You know, it was the 50th anniversary a few years ago. There was a major conference here that was up on the radio. There have been two documentaries published, one of which I was, you know, involved in to a certain degree. That was some years ago. There's a Black Lives series, Black Life, Black Life, Black Lives series being produced for CBC that's going to be air beginning in the fall, I think. And one episode is about much of the, the much of the history that's recounted in this book. So it's a long way of saying that, you know, reception or understanding and appreciation of that story has changed over time. But like so many parts of the historical experience and political experience of black folks in Canada, it was it was like known to a very small circle of people, right? And then, and yes, you're absolutely right. There was just the kind of traditional tropes associated with the Underground Railroad and other aspects of Canadian history, um, and much of its political history. And I say that very specifically. That, you know, the, the the you know the history of political activism, where people were organizing to change their social political existence within the context of Canada, that was hostile towards them. Right? Mm-hmm. Much of that history had not been written, and much of it actually still has not been written, you know, because it involves, in addition to people's oral testimonies, which are often dismissed when, you know, or not taken seriously, it involves archival research, right? It involves various layers of research, which which is beginning to be done, or, you know, is increasingly being done. But at that time, it was still, it was still completely, you know, so absolutely it was in filling, you know, the book in many respects, or that history fills it in a very important gap in terms of not just Canadian historical content, but how do we think about history in terms of people moving, organizing, struggling to humanize their existence in, in the in the Canadian in the Canadian context and how the, the their actions and events that they were a part of had reverberations and repercussions on a kind of local, national an international level, and also contributed to and you know to contributed to a changing of the Canadian social fabric. You know, when you think about folks who are engaged in political work, and you know they're in contact with you know Quebec nationalists, they're in contact with Indigenous peoples. You know, they're you know they're they're they're, they're working across class lines, you know, they're working across racial lines, they're racing, working across political lines to a certain degree. Like, this is an integral part of how Black folks in this context were trying to, were, ma- were making history and not only shaping their own lives, but the lives of the lives of the wider society. So, so it's, it's a long way of saying that, you know, it's a way of looking at the, you know, the political actions on how people organize to humanize their existence in this context and how in doing so they help shape the wider the wider society also. What is it about Montreal in the 1960s that really allows this to flourish? Because uh, the book does get into the, the specifics of what's going on, the, the people, the international flavor of individuals who are coming, prominent figures that I think a lot of people will have heard of like Stokely Carmichael mm-hmm. are coming through Montreal who are, are participating in these discussions. And you know, it's a time where it, it seems to me like a, 
economically the focus nationally that the shift is starting to go from Quebec towards Ontario, specifically to towards Toronto. You have the rise of Quebec nationalism, as you said, language disputes uh, between English and French. Uh, but again, you have the rise of you know, women's rights movements uh, more more uh, actively, uh, getting more public attention from those in power. Similarly, the civil rights movement in the United States. And then you have Montreal, where you have, like geographically, Montreal is not that big, right? Especially on the island. So you have a lot of people in close contact. Uh, it, it's perhaps easier to communicate, to, to gather, to build community. Uh, but really, what is it about the city that is so special, so unique that this entire community or communities are able to be built and even flourish uh, during this time? Mm-hmm. Well, you, you capture part of it in, in, in your question itself. That, you know, there are a lot of things happening in Montreal and in the world in the year 1968 and in the broad 1960s, the long 1960s, that are important to this this story. You know, it's the 60s where there, there are movements and struggles being waged in essentially every part of the world. Anti-colonial movements, anti-colonial struggles, post-colonial struggles. Um, you know, then, you meant, then, then there are movements like the civil rights movement, which then by 1968 is also transitioning or accompanied by the Black Power movement. You know, you have, you know, various groups, um, Latinx groups, you know, the gay rights movement, uh, the women's movement, and just various other groups, the so-called red power movement, you know, where indigenous peoples across the across both borders, on both sides of the border, Canadian-U.S. border, are, 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 are struggling to decolonize their existence. Um, so all of this is happening, and then you have a context of, Canadian nationalism, where in which Canada is trying to, you know, find itself. Nineteen sixty-seven is the year of Expo, International Exposition, right, that was held in Montreal, and it, it, it coincided with Canada's hundredth anniversary, celebrating its hundredth anniversary, right? But clearly, Canada was trying to find its place in the world and figure out its identity in relation to its you know, big brother, so to speak, south of the Canadian, south of the Canadian border. So, you know, I say that thinking about um, Carrie Levitt, the the, the the economist who wrote the famous book Silent Surrender, which is basically about Canada's uh, capitulation to U.S. economic and, by extension, cultural imp, um, um, influences. And that was an important part of the conversations that were happening in Canada in terms of, you know, where does Canada fit in relation to the United States? What is Canada's identity? But, of course, within the context of this Canadian identity, you know, whatever that's supposed to mean, in the in the in the conventional sense, right? The face of Canada was changing. You know, you had widespread immigration, and a large numbers of people that were coming, a large number of the people that were migrating here were coming here from the Caribbean, from across the Caribbean. They were coming here as domestic workers. They were coming here to work on the trains as porters, as African Canadians have historically done for many years. Um, they were coming here as students, and they and in many cases they they were coming out of context where there were strong political currents, movements, nationalist movements, anti-colonial movements, and political conversations being waged. And they brought that with them to this Canadian context, and particularly to Montreal as Canada's uh, cosmopolitan and industrial capital still at the time, even though a shift was beginning to happen. Um, 
And they brought that here within the context of being conscious and aware of movements that were the movements that were unfolding in the United States, the civil rights and black power movement. And they're in, the, they're in contact with a long-standing black community that have lived there in Montreal, right? That consists of people who are black Nova Scotian who have been here for over 200 years. Some folks who are descendants of folks who are slaves, right? Um, people of Caribbean descent who've been here for generations too, going back to the early 1900s even, right? Um, a place like, for example, there was a strong Universal Negro Improvement Association, the movement founded by Marcus Garvey. There was a strong chapter of that organization right here in Montreal that was established officially in 1919. Um, and one of its co-founders was Louise Langdon Norton, who's the mother of Malcolm X. And Malcolm X's parents were married in the city. So it gives you some sense that there was this kind of long history of struggle. Organizations like the Colored Women's Club, the Negro Community Center, Union United Church, all of these organizations that played an important role in the early part of the 20th century. That's important. Beginning in the early part of the 20th century, humanizing the existence of people of African descent in this country. And, you know, you add to that the thriving jazz scene, musical scene. Montreal was a place that had this confluence, this convergence of a range of people of African descent, right? And they all kind of came together within this kind of political context, in this heightened political moment in Montreal. And things happen in other cities too, but like it's the cosmopolitan nature of this city that's an attraction because it's Canada's big city still at that time. And then when you add to all of that, and people coming here as students to, the, to, to McGill, uh, what is now Concordia, Sir George, what was Sir George at the time, and the Francophone universities, because a large Haitian population that's beginning to migrate, migrate here, and that first wave of migrants are Haitian intellectuals, right? So they're now, they're writers and artists, and they're, they're in, you know, they're teaching in, eventually teaching universities, colleges, and high schools, right? And part of this political conversation, because they're coming out of the, the context of the the, the the dictatorship in Haiti, right? But they're, you know, but they're poets, writers, thinkers, and they're, they're contributing to the conversation that's unfolding here politically. And then, of course, there's the Quebec nationalist context, which cannot be underestimated, you know, within the context of a strong labor movement in Quebec, a strong student movement in Quebec, right? This is at the height of Quebec nationalism. The people like Pierre Vallière and many others, right? Uh, Quebec nationalists who are engaged in these conversations about, you know, the, the, the I don't want to really reduce it to distinct identity, but about the politics and place of French Quebecers within the context of Canada, within the context of Quebec. I mean, literally speaking, because this was a place dominated by Anglophones politically and, and, and economically. All of these elements that I've just mentioned, they're all part of a conversation in Montreal. And what I want to say about that is that they, so folks are arriving or living, black folks are arriving or living in a political context, right, where all of these conversations are unfolding, but they're also contributing to that context. So Quebec nationalists, are learning about, learning about writers and thinkers and discussing writers and thinkers like Amy Césaire and Frantz Fanon, who they may have been introduced to because those two writers in particular wrote in French from the 1950s or even earlier, right? But they're now encountering 
other thinkers or hearing about other thinkers like C.L.R. James from Trinidad, you know, and they're following the, the, you know, events as they unfold in the United States. I'm talking about French Quebecers here. So in some respects, even though these groups are very different and introducing the conversation, as I already mentioned at one point too, is that indigenous struggles and decolonization becomes part of this conversation too, right? So they're all speaking the same political language in many respects, even though they're addressing and thinking about the individual groups, right? And there's a sense of solidarity and internationalism. I don't want to romanticize it, right? And, you know, the thing is that, just proportionally speaking, I think it's important to understand that we're talking about a relatively small group of people, but they're influencing the wider, they're influencing the conversations that are taking place in the wider society. It's a relatively small group of people who are organizing and directly involved, but they're shaping the consciousness of the wider society. And that's really important, right? They're doing this amongst themselves as people who are politically actively involved and intellectually involved. And it's part of what's happening and being diffused in the wider society. So, so in addition to that, and it's one of the reasons why the map was included in this book, it was actually the suggestion of a, an old friend who passed away before the book was published. But um, when he read a draft of it, he suggested that um, that a, a map be included so people who are not familiar with Montreal could sort of map out the places, right? And one of the reasons for that is because all of this, so much of what is described in the book, at least from a historical point of view, right? Political events that are happening in that historical moment, I think is the way I'd put it, um, is happening in a, really, a relatively small circumscribed space much of which is much of which is walkable, right? yeah. and that's the nature of Montreal as a city, at least its core, right? You can walk for miles around the city, and like you know, at least three of the four universities where some of the events unfolds, Concordia, what was then Sir George McGill, and the University of Quebec at Montreal. I mean, they're in walking distance from each other. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. UCAM is a bit more of a walk, a walk compared to the relation compared to the distance between McGill and Concordia, but it's not it's walkable, right? And you know, you know, and student student activism and student organizing and protest and politics played a very important role um, in this group. You know, in terms of and in this group in, in 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 these events, the other university that's, that's further away. It's kind of up the mountain, right? Um, because Montreal, that's the other thing, Montreal is centered around a mountain, right? So there's almost like this, there's this kind of center point, mm-hmm. you know, which, you know, so you're not just walking in straight lines. Sometimes you're walking, you, you can be walking around like north, south, east, and west. The other university that's not close to the, those three, um, University, University de Montréal, University of Montreal, is in a neighborhood called Côte de Neige, which interestingly... In that broad neighborhood is where there was a growing black population, a black and Caribbean population. This is the neighborhood that folks were gravitating towards, and and shifting away from the traditional neighborhood of black folks, which is in the southwest, what is today known as Little Burgundy, and also parts of Saint Saint Henry. Right. So, so all of these things are in kind of different forms of proximity, and you know it was at University of Montreal in terms of some of the events that, you know, one set of events, which is a series of conferences organized by an organization called the Caribbean Conference Committee and its sister group, the CLR James Study Circle, which is the kind of more radical political side of that grouping, if that's one way to, to think about it. It was organized at University of Montreal in that neighborhood of Côte de Neige, and some of the people that were involved 
in organizing it, they, they, they lived in Kot Dinesh. You know? So you see how these things are sort of like geographically, how the events come together and where people are situated geographically in, rela- in relation to those. Um, it's a very different city from, from Toronto, which is much more of a flatscape much yeah. more of an of an expanse. Um, although I, you know, I do want to say that, you know, the cities were connected, you know, there are folks that were involved in things in Montreal who were living and studying in Toronto. There were folks that were involved in some of the things that happened in Montreal that Rocky Jones, for example, who was living in Nova Scotia or Tim Hector who was studying, you know, Rocky lived in, in Halifax and Tim Hector who was from Antigua lived in a Wolf of Nova Scotia where he was studying at, Acadia University. So, you know, Montreal is the point of departure, you know, and then things sort of work outwards. How much of the relationships and that process of of things almost fermenting in Montreal, the ideas, the discussions, and then being spread out across the country, as you said, and, and around the world, really, how much of that trust that's built in Montreal is based on economics. Uh, you mentioned the different communities, the different people who are coming together in Montreal and sharing these spaces, having these discussions. And you mentioned the concentration of wealth and power within Quebec politics with the uh, Anglophone minority. And does the inequality of wealth contribute to the positive relationships that are built or just in general, how much does the economic situation with so much wealth and therefore political power being concentrated in that Anglophone minority uh, and and Anglophone white minority uh, typically, Mm -hmm. like how much does that influence or, or shape the discussions and and the growth of the communities that are coming out of Montreal? Hmm. That's an interesting question, you know, which I guess involves talking about the complexity of the communities that existed in the city at the time. So sometimes, for example, when we talk about nationalism, we forget that Quebec nationalism Yes, it's about cultural identity, political identity, language, and it's not a question where you agree or disagree, or and we have a long conversation about what you know what na- that nationalism has morphed into in our com- contemporary context. That's another conversation. It's part of the conversation, but another conversation. It was about a big part of it was also obviously economic, right? About the economic enfranchisement of the majority of the population in this province. A province that was a province that was the wealthiest province by and large, in the Canadian context. There was like the cultural, financial, cosmopolitan capital, but that wealth, as you mentioned, was concentrated in the hands of white Anglophones for the most part, right? the English white English community. So, you know, inherently we're also talking about economics when we're talking about nationalism, but. We also had competing nationalisms in this context because there was also folks came here from the Caribbean and brought the kind of Caribbean nationalist politics, and that was introduced into the equation here. And there was the kind of black nationalism framed or or shaped by the civil rights black power movement in terms of, you know, black folks wanting to challenge the dominant norms that 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 
that restricted their life chances in the city. And again, that can be looked at in terms of social and cultural. You know, the fact that, um, you know, people were restricted geographically to certain communities. The fact that folks experience, you know, institutional racial discrimination on a daily basis. It was part of their day-to-day lives. It was part of their being and their existence. It was part of their day-to-day encounters with the dominant community. And even when they didn't physically encounter that community, right, it was that relationship that had shaped where they live and how they lived. And again, that's social, it's psychological because of this. We think about the psychological impacts of, you know, institutional racial discrimination, right? But again, you know, a big part, of course, was economical, economic because it meant that racial exclusion meant that people lived in substandard housing, mm-hmm. right? right, And had substandard jobs compared to the majority, had substandard education, right? Which reproduced this cycle in terms of eclipsing the life chances of the black population in, in, this, in this city as it did in this, in this country. So inherently when we talk, and this is something that is often missed, and I kind of talk about this, I think, in at some point in the book, outside of, you know, in one of the interviews, I think, is that, you know, when we talk about race and we talk about racism, right, we almost, we almost, when we, we almost, it, it almost becomes a way when we don't elaborate of not talking about the content and the lived experience, you know, what those mean, what those words mean in terms of how they shape people's lives. And a big part of it is economic exclusion. Absolutely. A big part of it is talking about class dynamics, right? And a big part of it is also thinking about how how a group of people that are, you know, phenotypically in terms of, you know, who look the same in terms of appearance, right? And come from the same general cultural background, right? They can also experience the world differently based on their socioeconomic status. And yet they're still going to deal with racism, right? right? It might it might not affect them in the exact same way in every instance, right? But they're still going to have to deal with that too, right? So that also speaks again to the com- complexity of the community here, because you have people who are highly educated, you know, you know, middle class in that sense, and including some folks who may be upper class, a small minority, perhaps, right? But you know, the vast majority was in the lower echelons, right? And you have people living on and below the poverty line, right? So you have people that came here with education that came from affluent backgrounds, you know, and they still they still came here as university students and dealt with, you know, racial exclusion, which is, you know, a big part of what Sir George, the Sir George Williams protests highlighted. But again, another long way of saying that, you know, you, 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 you hit the nail on the head there in terms, in terms of thinking about this in economic terms, because I think oftentimes, again, you know, People use words like racism. They talk about race and racism, and like we 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 often again forget that we're we're talking about people's life chances, right? Mm-hmm. And how and the obstacles that are put in place in terms of people, which affect affect people's health, education, employment, mental health, and and and, and folks' everyday lives in ways that the words themselves cannot do justice. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, very well said. Uh, another thing that you mentioned that I, I want to get into a little bit is the relationship between Canada and the Caribbean and the diaspora of such, whether it's a Canadian-Caribbean diaspora or Caribbean-Canadian diaspora, however uh, you, you want to look at it. But there is a strong relationship between 
the the region, the, the West Indies and and Canada. And I've done some work in my career on the uh, domestic program in the 1960s, uh, how uh, women immigrated to Canada to work as uh, or to work in the domestic sphere. Uh, Jean Augustine worked in or came to Canada through that program mm -hmm. and, of course, uh, became a cabinet minister. But within that sense of, of what you're talking about in the book, what is it about the relationship between Canada and uh, the Caribbean, the West Indies? Like, why is it as strong as it is in so many ways? And, and how does that relationship uh, impact the Montreal community and the things you're talking about in the 1960s? So another really interesting question. I think we have to talk about historical relationships and, you know, Canada and the Caribbean were British colonies at one point. Canada was a British colony, an English colony yeah. at one point, right? And, you know, just like the Caribbean region, and Canada was founded, established, you know, you know, what became Canada, right? It was, you know, colonized in order to provide, you know, resources, right, that were funneled to England. Right? It was part of England's economic development in much the same way that the Caribbean was through, through slavery initially, right? Um, there's the famous book by Eric Williams, Capitalism and Slavery, which talks about the, the contribution that slavery made to the development of port cities and, and to the emergence of capitalism in, in, in Europe. C.L.R. James wrote the book, The Black Jacobins, which even though that's not its focus, it, it, it makes the same claim. In fact, they made that claim before Eric Williams uh, about, you know, about, about French colonies like Saint-Domingue or what is Haiti today and its contribution, you know, in terms of like the, the, the huge amount of mass amounts of wealth that contributed to the development of, of what we understand to be cap capitalism, capitalism today. So they, they have that in common. And, you know, there's also this tendency to kind of think about the Americas as these disparate, you know, regions or islands or, you know, there's, there's North America, South America. But they've, they've always historically been being interconnected. So, for example, one of the, the national food that people, one of the national foods that people eat in Jamaica and other parts of the Caribbean is, is codfish, right? Which comes from the which comes from the Maritimes, and yeah. it was brought to the Caribbean because it was cheap. It's salted fish, um, and that's what that's what people who were enslaved uh, were, were were fed. Right? On the other hand, you have like the rum industry, right? And that was partly that that that's, that comes from sugarcane, right? So you know, and you know, we we just think about how. Financially speaking, and this is more recent history, like, you know, there was a time when Canadian banks dominated the Caribbean region. Yeah. Right? Canadian banks, yeah. not, not American yeah. banks, yeah. Not, 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 not English banks, but yeah. Canadian sorry, banks. Not, not so, to cut you, you off, know, David, but I, I spent a year oh. at the, uh, the West Indies, the University of the West Indies, the Cave Hill campus. I did all my banking mm. at I did all my banking at an RBC that was 30 seconds go. from campus, right. right? So like, yeah, like a, a very strong presence, as you say. RBC, Bank of Montreal, uh, the Royal Bank of Canada, Bank of Nova Scotia, all of these banks, including in places like Haiti and Cuba. So there's been this long-standing relationship 
right, where finance capital was invested in the Caribbean region and benefited economically, yeah. right? And then you add insurance companies, right? And then you add, you know, in, in you know, in more recent times, the bauxite industry, a multi-billion dollar industry, right? Yeah. Bauxite is the mineral that's used to make aluminum foil, right? You know, Canada has some of the biggest, you know, you know, you know, Canada's mining industry is used, but like companies like Alcan, for example, and what's the other one? The American company, I think is Reynolds is the American version, right? So there have been these long-standing economic ties, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, people would assume that that would be the United States or people would assume that, you know, because of colonization, that would be England. And Canada has historically sort of flown beneath the radar when it comes, when it comes to those kinds of e- 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 economic interests. And, and, and the thing to consider about that is that, like, these are forms of economic, these are economic ties that have contributed to the economic underdevelopment of the Caribbean region because those banks were there to serve foreign interests. Mm-hmm. The bauxite industry was there to serve foreign in, foreign interests, right? And most of those profits obviously go to foreign companies, including Canadian companies. And at the cost of the region in terms of, you know, you know, if you if you if you were to visit Jamaica and see those parts of Jamaica where bauxite was mined. The soil is ruined. You cannot cultivate anything else there. It created all kinds of toxins. There's all kinds of issues environmentally surrounded around that, which is actually a, a topic of discussion today in Jamaica because, you know, there, 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 there's talk about reinve- a reinvestment in the bauxite industry, right? So part of what I want to say is that all of those banks and industries and companies that benefited can- Canadian companies, and some Canadian people more than others, right, came at the expense of people in the Caribbean and contributed to the economic underdevelopment and impoverishment, which then facilitates people having to leave their home countries, mm-hmm. right, in search of opportunities in places like Canada, coming here as domestic workers or to work as porters or to come here to study, right? So there's a direct correlation between the wealth and development of Canada and the underdevelopment, to use a language that came out of kind of a, you know developmental theory in the nineteen seventies, right? And the underdevelopment of places places like the Caribbean. So you know, folks were coming here again in search of opportunities that did not exist. And of course, like this was not a new phenomenon. It goes back to the history of slavery, mm-hmm. right? And including slavery in Canada. Right and the ongoing need for cheap labor, whether it's to work as domestic workers of a certain kind here in Canada, or as farmhands, or whatever the case may be, right? So, so, and and many of these slaves would have passed, you know, from the African continent through the Caribbean and then find their way here. So, like this is like an this is like a kind of, you know, it's it's a circuit. It, you know, we have to is a way we can think of it as a kind of circuit, right? And if we pretend that those borders, like we because we live with these national borders in our head in our heads and we and we kind of assume that like those borders had meaning in terms of the movement of people, but they didn't. Right. right? Yep. So people coming in and out based on the economic needs, and this goes back again to as I said to like the, the history of slavery. And so people are coming here in search of opportunities, but they're also coming here sort of kind of invited because Canada Canada needs that cheap labor, right? And 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 it's 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 still happening today. Like temporary foreign workers who come here and work as farmhands under the, under the most horrible, terrible conditions, 
no rights, no freedoms, no civil liberties. They can be sent back, you know, in some cases up without getting paid, right? And, you know, working under, you know, you know, it's substandard housing conditions. So this is happening. This is happening today. Right. right. And, there's, you know, I think, again, because, you know, I really appreciate the fact that you, 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 you raise the question of economics because, you know, this is not a country that's open it door, open its doors to foreigners because people wanted to come here. Right. It was based on economic necessity. Some folks came here and did manual labor. Some folks came here because they weren't enough professionals, right? So we forget that too. Like people, some of the people that came here from the Caribbean came here as professionals, right? In various professions, right? Mm-hmm. Most, many, many, many in education at various levels, but other professions too, because there was a shortage of professional labor as well as manual labor in in, in this country and in the city, right? Mm-hmm. As the, especially as these cities were growing, Canadian cities were growing, you know, and economies were growing, et cetera. So economics is, again, at the, at the core of it. You know, labor is at the core of it, right? That experience in terms of what happens to folks when they arrive here or when they're living here, right? Mm-hmm. We can speak about in racial terms. Absolutely, right? But um, for, for, for the reasons that I, that I just mentioned, right, we can't, in fact, it's not that we can't, we have to talk about the economics of, of, of much of this. And, and again, I don't want to say that like everything can be reduced to economics because that's not how sure. people live their lives, right? Of course. But, you know, but, 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 but that's the part that often seems to be either neglected or disconnected from people's day-to-day reality. So I used to work at Parks Canada too, and, and I should say that I was there when slavery in Canada was designated a national historic event. And I saw some of the responses that came in after that happened of people claiming that we were making that up or that wasn't true or that like, so it's something that doesn't really get taught the actual enslavement of people in Canada. I mean, it's pre-Confederation, but we'll just say Canada so as to not confuse Mm -hmm. the, you know, Canada, East Canada, all that. We'll just say Canada. And so there is the reality of that. But as you said, oftentimes that gets lost in the broader understanding or discussions of slavery within the Americas, because it's a much smaller part of the Canadian economy and the structure of it than it is in the United States and certainly in parts of uh, the Caribbean and South America. But as you mentioned, the economic ties and the benefits that people in Canada uh, economic benefits that people in Canada got from enslaved individuals in other parts of the Western Hemisphere really does highlight, to a certain extent, the the racial and wealth inequality that existed. And one of the theses of the book is that the legacy of slavery continues to influence racial dynamics, racial relationships, uh, the discipline, punishment, uh, the the way in which society deals with some of these issues is related to that. So even if Canada didn't have slavery on the same scale as elsewhere, how much does just the relationships with these places that did primarily have labor systems based on enslavement influence those processes? And, And what would you say to individuals who, and there are a lot across the country who would say that, well, enslavement and slavery doesn't really have a place 
within Canadian history? Sure. So, I mean, so first of all, Canada is a settler state, yes. right? A settler colonial state, which means that one group, which consisted of many groups, right? So, and this is, our, you know, you know, this is why I'm thinking about a student I had in my class last semester who kept on, you know, making this point when folks would make broad generalizations. Of course, we have to speak in generalizations all the time or else we'd be, we'd be you know, um, you know, qualifying everything we say, right? right. But like, but there's no such thing as white people per se. And, you know, in a certain kind of way, there's no such thing as Europeans per se. So a number of different groups of European people, the English being the dominant one, and in this context here where I live in Quebec, the, the French being the dominant one, at least at one point, right? They came and colonized this place that we call, that we call Canada. So, in, so immediately as a result of that relationship, it meant that they were, they, their existence, they existed in relation to another group, which was indigenous people. And that's important to say first and foremost, right? So indigenous peoples, like the original population, became the dominant other group. And then, of course, over time, various other groups migrated here. And, you know, we think about the North American context, too. And this is why I make this point about, like, who's white. Like, yeah, people Irish and Scottish migrate to this place. And they're not considered white. Right. Not English. They're not French. And they're not even considered white, in the, you know, to the extent that whiteness becomes a thing, yeah. like, until much later, right? Because they're, like, the colonized people, the Irish and the Scots, and especially the Irish, right, in the European-British context, right? So these folks come here. And, you know, their identities are shifting and changing over time as, like, Canada's identity and, you know, there's this thing called British North America. So all these details are important in terms of thinking about how, how like, you know, there are identity shifts taking place, even though there are, you know, there are dominant groups and a dominant group. Right? And then as a result of slavery in North America... And again, in British North America, right? So we're talking up until 1776 when the United States becomes in, independent, right? Right? It's the same continental mass, so to speak, right? Ruled by the British, except for New France, right? Um, and well, by 1776, you know, New France is no longer New France anymore either. And that dominant group exists in relation to people of African descent and indigenous people. So those codes were already present. And slavery was already present in British North America before Canada becomes a thing, right? So, of course, over time, as, you know, this thing called Canada begins to morph into, well, it begins to morph into what becomes Canada, right? These, these disparate territories, right? Those codes are already present. So there's already a dominant perception of what it means to be a person of African descent associated with manual labor, associated with slavery, right? Associated with all kinds of racial stereotypes in terms of intelligence, right? And physical attributes, etc. Those are already here, right? And, you know, so even as, you know, this thing that morphs into Canada becomes more and more, more and more distinct in relation to the United States, right? There's still slavery going on here. Again, as you mentioned, not in the large mass numbers. It's not plantation slavery in the way that you had plantation slavery on a mass scale that's like like crucial to the American economy, right? In in the southern United States, but to the entire American economy. But black folks already perceived 
as, you know, again, all the racial stereotypes about being inferior, intellectually inferior, et cetera, only good for, 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 for menial work and manual labor. So when slavery is abolished, eventually, right, um, those racial codes persist, persist in, you know, what I refer to in the book as the afterlife of slavery. I mean, it's just, it's just a word, but it's a word that's become quite popular, used initially by, made popular by Cydia Hartman. Um, an African African American intellectual, right? So those codes persist in the afterlife, right? And they don't just persist in a, persist in a vacuum. There's enough Black people in Canada, you know, whether it be in Nova Scotia, whether it be in the prairies, and here in Montreal, right, to kind of reinscribe reinscribe and reinforce those racial attitudes, right? And they're reinforced, not just in terms of how people are treated, but then as a result of how they're treated, where they are situated in society, right? In the bottom of the society, along, along, alongside, alongside indigenous people. So those codes have just been passed on from one generation to the next. And they're codes that basically delineate where black folks are supposed to be situated in Canadian society, what place they're supposed to hold. And it's clearly not in terms of, you know, in terms of education, in terms of professions, in terms of social standing. It's clearly not at the top and it's never been designed to be that way. Right. So 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 it's a long way of saying that if we want to understand, you know, where these attitudes come from, including in places where there are hardly any black folks, right? It's historically been part of the dominant narrative of this entire society. And by this entire society, I mean the Americas, and I mean, I'm, I'm speaking very broadly, the entire Americas was premised on these attitudes. Right. So even in places where there are hardly any black folks, nobody can escape them, right? And again, you know, they've shaped, they have shaped our lives and they, they shaped and continue to shape our lives in so many ways. And it's a part where I talk about in the book towards a conclusion or, or, and, and in one of the, the final chapters, is that, you know, this has bearing, like when, you, when you've been socialized historically over time and the weight of that historical socialization being passed down from generation to generation to believe that one group of people is intellectually not as intelligent, it has some bearing on how that, that child or student is treated inside the classroom. When you have this stereotype of folks being prone to crime and violence. It has some bearing on how police officers who carry guns encounter black folks in their day-to-day lives, in their neighborhoods, and in the streets, right? It has some bearing on the perception of who is supposed to be incarcerated so that when they see that black folks are disproportionately incarcerated and criminalized in this country, it's normalized because, well, that's how it's been because that's how it's supposed to be. That's the natural order of things, in other words, because that's where black folks belong, because that's historically where they have been placed. You see what, you see what I'm saying? It affects how black folks are treated in the judicial system. It affects how people are treated when they walk into a store, when they apply for a job. So, you know, this is why history matters, right? Because we can trace the origins of how we've arrived at this place. And it allows us to think about, well, 
if this is the roots, how do we change those roots? That becomes, so we shift the conversation as opposed to saying, well, you know, there's no historical basis for this. This is not true. You know, folks are told that they make up things when, you know, you know, in this context here where I live, you know, there's a government that says there's no such thing as institutional or structural racial discrimination, right? And, you know, you know, and they have no history. Well, A, they just, there's just a kind of flat out denial that because it's expedient, it serves certain groups' interests, right? But there are also groups of people who just don't understand their own history. Sure. They don't understand the history of this province, the history of this country. There are folks that don't know that, you know, slavery was, <clears throat> was a thing here, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, or there are folks that, you know, because critical thinking is being thrown out the window, right? That, you know, we, we, you know, a lack of understanding of how ideas sort of translate yeah. in various contexts, right? Through history, through what we read, what we're socialized into, through books, through the mass media, etc. Right. So, um, you know, the historical roots is very important, right? And this is one of the reasons why I say that, you know, fear of a black nation, for me, is not a work of history. But it's very much grounded in history, and I say it's grounded in history because, but but the objective is to kind of think about how we've arrived at where we are in this society, mm-hmm. in North America, and in the world that we're living. I would say in the, in 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 the broader sense, and um, you know, it, it in a sense provides some you know historical context, but but it also for me is about thinking about how we organize to change things by looking at how some people organize their own lives to change things or attempted to. And that why there's a, in part why there's a second edition, because it's still very, very relevant, as you say. So, again, the, the book is Fear of a Black Nation, Race, Sex and Security in 60s Montreal. David, if people want to pick up a copy of the book or some of your other work uh, that is available, what's the best way for them to keep up with everything you got going on? Well, it's 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 widely available. Um, this this edition of this book, um, the second edition is now is is now in bookstores. Um of course, um, you know, with this book or anything else that I've written or, you know, or edited, um, I'd like to encourage people to actually buy the book in bookstores as opposed to, I know we all have that temptation to order online, especially from that, that big bag, big bad beast that we won't name. Right? Yes. But it's important to support bookstores, you know, because one of the things that was really interesting during the pandemic is that books, publishers received a bit of a boost. You know, because people are at home and they wanted to read, but also smaller publishers and left publishers received the boost because, you know, in the context of, you know, what was happening post George Floyd, et cetera, people were asking questions. Right. Um, so 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 the readership is there and the desire to understand is there. And yet. So, you know, just encouraging people to yes, support small and independent bookstores. And, you know, where, you know, you know, there was a time when folks were wondering if, if bookstores were, were still relevant. We've managed to survive so far. And uh, I think it's important to, to encourage that. Yes. Uh, and as you say, with the smaller publishers, this is a Between the Lines book, our friends uh, at Between the Lines uh, who are who are doing the second edition. So uh, always love to see what they have coming out. Uh, they have a great catalog uh, every, every year when they put it out. And uh, yeah, I encourage you to check out your local bookstores, especially uh, again, we won't name the the people or the, the company, but they've been on a 
pretty big blitz this week uh, with a, their promotion. So That's right. get away from them. Uh, support your local bookstores. Uh, David Austin, uh, thank you so much for doing this. Really enjoyed the conversation. My pleasure. Take care then. So my thanks to David Austin. And again, the book is Fear of a Black Nation, Race, Sex, and Security in 60s Montreal. And with that, let's head right to today's historical headline of the week, which comes from the CBC by Selena Alders. Inside a legendary African Nova Scotian boxer, George Dixon receives historical designation from June 12, 2023. And I will admit that this one is mildly selfish in that George Dixon is now a person of national historic significance as designated by the Historic Sites and Monuments Board of Canada. And this was actually the final project I worked on at Parks Canada, writing the submission report to the Historic Sites and Monuments Board about George Dixon. Didn't the research on his life, did the bit of a bio on his career, what he went through, as well as his continued effort to push forward on civil rights, challenge the racial discrimination that he faced during his career using his platform as a boxer. One of the things that he did, for instance, is that he insisted that for all of his fights, there were tickets made available to black patrons. And this was particularly challenged in the South, but he continued to insist upon it and got promoters to ensure that there would be space made available to non-white fans of his. And that's just one example of something that George Dixon did. So for as much as he was a very accomplished boxer, first boxer to win world titles in two weight classes, first one also to regain a title after having lost it, he was prolific in the ring, but he also used that platform to great social ends using his power that he gained through sport. And last month, the plaque for George Dixon was unveiled on the grounds of the Africville Museum out in Halifax. There's also a mural to George Dixon out at Africville. So if you're in the area, not only should you go to the Africville Museum because it's wonderful, you can also then now check out the plaque and the mural to George Dixon, which is today's historical headline of the week. Again, from the CBC, from Selena Alders, legendary African Nova Scotian boxer George Dixon receives historical designation. And with that, I will thank you for listening, everybody. As always, do rate, review, comment, do all that stuff. Subscribe to the show. All that helps other people find us and keeps us growing and you can always let me know what you want to hear on the show what's old as news at gmail.com and head on over to activehistory.ca lots of great stuff in the archives over there pretty much anything canadian history related if you're looking for something written there's probably something in there when you use the search tab at the top of the site so I encourage you to check that one out always a little slower in the summer but tons of great material available there on active history which is where you will find our next episode coming up next week for more What's Old as News.